Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, it's Dan and this is our Wednesday Orange and Brown Talk podcast. Mary Kate Cabot and Scott Pats go on board today and we are each coming up with two Browns questions. We didn't really rehearse them or go over them, so here they are. Six questions in total, two each. We talk about OTAs, uh, Miles Garrett, and maybe what he could accomplish this season. Some PFF rankings, all sorts of fun stuff. Peter King's power rankings, we get into those. He had the Browns a little higher than some other rankings we've seen. So that's coming up on the pod. Make sure you check out Football Insider, the blue banner at the top of the page, cleveland.com slash browns to get signed up and get information. Now, our Wednesday Orange and Brown Talk podcast. Let's get right to it. Mary Kay, get us off with your first question. Well, you know, today I have been watching players from teams all over the NFL practice. I mean, we're seeing little videos of Ben Roethlisberger out there throwing the ball and we're seeing the Ravens. We're seeing Josh Allen. And it just feels a little weird to me that the Browns are not practicing this week. So as we all know, today started phase three of OTAs, which traditionally begins three weeks of practices, 10 practices over these three weeks followed by the minicamp. They are still doing virtual meetings this week and just a very limited group of players, which I think mostly is the rookies and and some other guys that are out there practicing, young guys, guys coming off injuries uh, are out there practicing. Now a lot fewer than that. There was a little (laughs) COVID-19 thing going on too. But anyways, it's a small group that they have out there. Whereas you've got the Chiefs with 81 players. You've got the Jets with 80. I mean, full capacity for pretty much everyone Uh, it seems, or many of these teams. And here the Browns are, at least for this first full week of of OTAs and for last week in phase two, which was a lesser version of OTAs, still doing virtual meetings. And my question to you guys is, are they falling behind? And in the long run, will this hurt them as they prepare for the 2021 season? I'm going to say no, it will not. And no, they're not falling behind. If this had been last year, if this was Kevin Stefanski's first season, then I'd, I'd kind of be concerned about that. But the fact that they do have so much continuity on this team, I know I know they obviously made a lot of changes on defense, but you still have the classroom instruction, basically, which is important. You're still getting your information to your players. You know, we've seen OTA practices before. There, there's a lot of walkthrough action and, individual drills and 
at this point in the year, I don't think it's a big deal. I think they're getting done what they need to. It's just more about information at this point. It would be nice to have everybody out there and be able to say, yeah, we're doing our installs and, and that, but I, I just don't think it's an issue at this point. I don't think they're falling behind to the point where they should be scrambling or something. I think they're fine. Yeah, I, I think it would be helpful to get on the field. I don't think it's going to be the like story of the season. Yeah, there, I mean, there is the potential that we have like some hindsight at the end of the year and some team wins and some other team loses. And we say, well, you know, that team had everybody there and, you know, in the spring, but I don't know if that's really going to be the cause of it. So I, I think they're losing something, but I don't know that it's going to be like come November, we're going to be like, man, this wouldn't have happened if the Browns had had a full squad reporting in the spring. And I do think it's important that they're at least doing something. You know, so this is, you know, in the past, if this would have happened three years ago and nobody would have shown up, they wouldn't even have been having meetings. So at least they're having like that aspect of it. So at least they're doing some kind of work and whatever changes they're making this year, at least they're able to kind of start addressing those. I think eventually we'll see a bigger group of players on the field anyway. And, you know, if they end up getting a week or two on the field and they get a full slate of meetings I don't know how much it's going to impact them as far as being behind you know a team like Kansas City or a team like you know Ben Roethlisberger was there today at at Steelers OTAs I don't know that it's going to put them way way behind where they need to be yeah and and the other thing I think to consider about this is once these guys do show up and what they have planned are some more traditional OTAs in the final two weeks. That's kind of what they worked out. That's what they negotiated with the coaching staff. The fact that they will be maybe out in full force for the next two weeks, I think will kind of help. But the other thing that I think will help them more so than anything is that they run a very efficient training camp. I mean, these guys do not waste any time. They do not mess around. They don't stand around a lot. Uh, They move at a very fast and brisk clip during training camp. They waste no time. And that's what happens when you have an incredibly organized coaching staff. Uh, So whatever they are missing in this week, or maybe a little bit last week, I think they will quickly catch up during their mini camp and during training camp. The NFLPA would would argue that they shouldn't be missing anything because it's all voluntary, right? Right. And that's, that's so true. And it it is supposed to be, but you even heard, you know, you had Andy Reid talking to Patrick Mahomes and Teron Matthew saying how important it is for him to get all these guys in here. So if you've got a guy like Andy Reid saying it's important, then, you know, there must be some value in it. And I, I think there is a human nature element too, where maybe coaches, aren't supposed to penalize players for not showing up in the spring. But if you got a couple guys who are kind of even and on the bubble and one guy was there in the spring and one guy wasn't, I'm sure in the back of a coach's mind, even if he's trying to like not take that into account, I bet you it does factor in a little bit, you know, they're human beings. They kind of remember all this stuff. And while, you know, the effort might be there to not hold that against a player. I just think that's, I think it puts everybody in a really tough position that these things are volunt kind of quote unquote voluntary in a lot of ways. I mean, I don't know, either make a mandatory or don't have them is probably the way to go, but I don't know that they could ever actually manage that. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it is, it's, it's a weird dynamic. It really is. And even weirder now uh, because you've got the NFLPA saying 
don't go. We shouldn't be doing this. And for the Browns, you've got your starting center, who is the president of the NFLPA, spearheading the movement for safety and for, you know, for health. And, you know, what happened today in a modified version of OTAs, you're listening to this on Wednesday, but on Tuesday in the modified version, uh, this was what JC was, I think, maybe trying to talk about was that, you know, there still is a pandemic going on and a player tested positive and several other players were sent home. So I, I think that they were trying to say, you know what, we still, you know, we're not out of the woods just yet. And this still is a contact sport and we still have to be very close together, working together, breathing on each other. And the less time we have in close proximity, the better. There, there's just a lot at play here. Let's go to question two. Scott, what do you have? All right. So PFF's been rolling out their off-season rankings, and we've talked previously on the podcast about their skill positions. Well, they did offensive line uh, and defensive line today and, and yesterday. And I wanted to ask you about the offensive line, uh, particularly tackle. And they, and they put right and left tackles all together. Jack Conklin ranked 12th among all offensive tackles. They ranked 32 of them. Jedrick Wills is not among them. Tristan Wirfs is sixth, one of the other first rounders from last season. Makai Becton of the Jets is 20th. What do you think about Jedrick Wills not being one of the top 32 tackles? He was ranked in the top 30 as a pass protector last year among all tackles. And we all remember he had kind of had ups and downs against the run, but I don't know. I was surprised that he didn't just kind of sneak in at the bottom there, uh, especially after seeing Wirfs so high and, and Becton show up. What do you think about Wills not making the ranking? You know what? It, it is a surprise for him, for your number 10 overall pick, to not be amongst the top 32 tackles in the league. Now, as you mentioned, they're lumping them all together. So this really would be out of 64 tackles. Uh, but to not be in, in the top 32, you don't really want to see that. You want to see him uh, in that group. The thing that surprised me uh, was where he finished overall last season. And I think it was 79th among qualifying tackles. Correct me if I'm wrong on that, Scott. Is that correct? He was 70, well, 71st. That's what surprised me more than anything, is that, he, that they ranked him that low. I bet you if the Browns did their own rankings. Of course, they're a little biased, but I don't think they would have had him at 71st amongst qualifying tackles in the NFL. I just don't really think uh, that they would have him that low. Didn't that number surprise the heck out of you guys at the end of the season? It did because I, I wasn't watching a guy that was, I, I mean, I didn't, and look, I don't know all the nuances of left tackle play and, and all of this, but I, I didn't feel like Jedrick Wills was the reason anything like bad was happening. He wasn't a disaster. I mean, he wasn't great, but I thought just kind of following along all season, he sort of did what the Browns needed him to do. And that stabilized a really important position and protect Baker Mayfield. And he did have some moments in the run game where I thought he did some good things um, to open up some opportunities for Nick Chubb. So I'm a little surprised. He's not at least in the top 32 I don't know. I'm just not concerned about all this stuff we just said. I'm not concerned that he's not ranked. I'm not concerned that he graded so low. I felt like kind of based on everything that he had to do to move from right to left with no off season, kind of just thrown into the fire. I thought he at least held his own. I'm, I'm not panicking about Jedrick Wills. 
Yeah, I think the it's his kind of inconsistency in the run game is what pulled him down. Just looking at the grade, he had a he graded at seventy nine over seventy nine as a pass blocker, and then fifty. He only let up as a run blocker. He only let up uh, let in eighteen pressures, four sacks, and I think that's the important thing. Like you said, Dan, it's the fact that you draft a left tackle to protect the quarterback first, and he seemed to do a pretty good job of that. And even though both tackles for the Browns are not on this ranking, the Browns still finished the year as PFF's top offensive line. And they were, they were number one in pass blocking and, and run blocking. So as a group, obviously this worked. Now you, you have a left tackle coming back for year two. He's got room to improve. I mean, imagine him showing progress in the run game and, that's about all he needs to do to get on a list like this for next year, I think. In addition to his surprising ranking, and we've talked about this many times, Wyatt Teller was the number one ranked guard at the end of the season, uh, despite a fairly low pass blocking grade. I don't know. It just seems like that that's quite a disparity for Wyatt to be ranked the number one guard in the NFL and for Jed I mean, to be number 71 overall, which you're not even amongst ranked amongst the, the 64 starters, right? Teller was so high because his run blocking grade was like one of the best ever, Yeah, basically is what it came down to. He did so well. I mean, you saw what he did to, it was in the playoff game, uh, Matthew, when he just flattened him. So he did that a lot last season. That's the thing that, that surprised me the most, as you guys have been saying. We never looked out there and thought, that Jed was a liability on the offensive line. We never felt that way. I, I would expect that that number is going to jump up this year pretty significantly. All right, here's my question. We're going to look at more rankings. These are team rankings. Peter King put out his power rankings this week, and I'm going to list them off to you. Kansas City, number one, Tampa Bay, number two, Buffalo, number three, and the Cleveland Browns, number four. They are ahead of number five, San Francisco, six, L.A., seven Baltimore and eight Green Bay. Those are the notable teams that they're in front of one through eight. So no disrespect here to Peter King. Is he crazy? Uh, this is the, this is the week for power rankings because uh, last week I, I actually started grabbing some of the early ones that came out. I found the Browns uh, ranked eighth, seventh, sixth, fifth, and fourth in, in power rankings. And you know, it was always KC, Tampa Bay, Buffalo, and every single one of those. And then it was, you know, how you felt about Green Bay and Baltimore, basically. But Bleacher Report also had them fourth uh, overall. And I don't think it's so crazy. I think, you know, we went through our whole ranking, power ranking in the AFC uh, for the podcast. And, I mean, you can make an argument that that other than the, the Chiefs and the Bills, they're, they're right there with anybody else in at least the AFC. So... No, I don't think it's crazy. Yeah, you know what? I mean, it's not. When you look at some of these other teams, San Francisco at number five is going to have a new starting quarterback, a rookie, and sometimes, quite often, there are growing pains, but they're also getting Nick Bosa back, and just collectively as a team, they should be much better if they get good quarterback play. L.A., you know what? I mean, L.A. could end up being really, really good with, with Matt Stafford there. So that'll be interesting. You know, the Browns took some of their defensive guys, but they still are coming off a number one ranking on defense overall. 
Baltimore, that's one where I actually think this might be kind of low. I mean, I think they improved their team this offseason, and that might be a little bit low at number seven. But this next tier after that top three, you could go a bunch of different ways, and a case can be made that any one of them can go at number four, including the Cleveland Browns. Yeah, I think it just speaks to the potential upside of this team. Like you said, Scott, they're all over the board, right? That's in, in between that range of those numbers. But a lot of those teams are interchangeable, right? If Baker Mayfield does what Josh Allen did last year, then maybe the Browns pass Buffalo. Maybe they pass Baltimore. I, I mean, that's sort of what it comes down to is what all these quarterbacks kind of do in these next years. What's Lamar Jackson do? Does he... Does he have another level that he can get to that might kind of dictate where Baltimore ends up? I don't know. I wouldn't put the Browns this high if I were doing power rankings, but having them at four is a little more, it makes more sense to me than having San Francisco at five. If we're being honest, I think that feels a little bit high for San Francisco, even though I think they will be a good football team again this year, but I don't think he's crazy. I, like I said, I wouldn't put him there, but there's a case and he, and he's making it. So, you know, good for him. Well, who would you put there, Dan? I just can't put the Browns ahead of Baltimore. I would go, so let's see. I would go Kansas City, Tampa, Buffalo. I'm going to put the Rams there. I put the Rams four, Baltimore five, and the Browns six. And that's just kind of off the top of my head. I mean, I think that's fair. I think that there is that next group. In the and maybe Green season. Bay, if, if I know Aaron Rodgers is going to be in Green Bay, I'd have to kind of figure out where to where to slot them to. Yes, absolutely. And a lot of it's going to have to do with how does Matt Stafford assimilate into uh, that that Rams team and how does he play and how did how did he and Sean McVay click together in their first season? I mean, if 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 they're dynamite together, those guys can potentially be amazing. I'm very anxious to see where four, five, six, seven, eight end up. I hate rankings. <laughs> I'll be honest <laughs> with you guys. I just, I know we do them and they're fun. People read them, but I don't know. It, everybody puts Casey and Tampa Bay number one and number two in whatever order. Well, okay. The two teams were in the Super Bowl last year. You think they're going to be the best again? That hardly ever happens, but we're going to go ahead and put them at the top of every power ranking we've, we've seen so far. I just, I don't know. There's always that team or two that just kind of takes the league by storm in a year when you don't expect them to, and they're kind of the juggernaut that year. And that's what I'm interested to find out is are, who are the teams that are going to, you know, maybe in some cases even come out of nowhere, but there's a bunch that are ready to sort of take that next step up into uh, more of an elite football team. I mean, I think the Chargers are in that category. I think I think there are a number of teams in that category that can just take off this year. And don't sleep on Baltimore. They they had a lot of issues last last year that were not of their own making. Like they just had a lot of bad luck. Like that team. Th- this could be the year when 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 Baltimore shows what should have happened this past season. And they just I think they're going to be good. I'm going to start this round off. So the MVP has become very much a quarterback award. What does Miles Garrett have to do to win the MVP? Can he win the MVP? Yeah, he he can win it. I mean, he has to, he has to play at the level that he played at pre COVID last year. And he's got to try to take that throughout 
the whole entire season. His last two years were marred, number one, by a suspension, and then last year by COVID-19. If, if he can overcome and have a, the kind of a year where he can play most of the, the 17 games, now maybe he can miss a, a game or two and still do it, but he's got to play most of those games and play at the level that he did at the beginning. I think you almost have to lead the league in sacks or you have to be right up there. And then, you know, you've got to make the other big impact plays. So he still has to get those forced fumbles. He's got to get those strips. He's got to show up on uh, on national television. He's got to do it in prime time when people are seeing him be dominant. But if he can do it and sustain it for almost 17 games, I think he's got a shot. So I'm, I'm looking this up just to put it in perspective. This is wild. 2012 is the last time a non-quarterback won the award. You've got to go all the way back to 1986 to find a defensive player. And that was Lawrence Taylor to win the award. But I would make the case that we're not that far off from this award, maybe starting to flip back to not just going to quarterbacks. And Miles would be in that discussion. But Scott, what do you think? Uh, well, number one, he's got to play a whole season, obviously. Number two, he has to lead the league in sacks, and he has to – he's got to come within striking distance of the NFL record for sacks, I think, in order to be the MVP. Because you have to distance yourself from Aaron Donald somehow just on the defensive side of the ball. And I think to do that, to take the discussion away from Aaron Donald, you have to threaten that and then make the kind of plays he was making through the first half of the season, you know, those strip sacks that – change the momentum of the game or forcing, you know, the safety against the Colts, which I don't think he really technically got any credit for, but it was clearly why uh, Philip Rivers threw the ball away in the end zone in that, on that play. So things like that, that people can see that this guy is making a difference, like a real visible difference in the game beyond just pressures um, in, in, in a sack, but threatening that sack record is I think huge in, in winning an award like that. Yeah, Aaron Donald is a good name to bring up because all these years people have made the case he's the best player in football, and yet he, ne- he never wins the MVP. It always goes to a quarterback. But I do think we're going to reach a point where, you know, I don't know what it's going to take, but I do think we're going to reach a point where, like, some year everybody's just going to be tired of voting for the quarterback, and there's going to be a convincing case for a defensive player. And maybe Miles Garrett will be right place, right time. I don't know if it happens this year. But, it, you know, he's, yeah, he's got to get close to that record and he's got to have a bunch of highlight plays and, and kind of show people, hey, this guy's maybe the best defensive player in football. And, and of course, the Browns have to be really good, too. Having said all of that, there is sort of a renaissance of quarterbacks going on yeah. in the NFL. You know, I mean, there's a lot of really good new young guys. There are, you know, still your amazing older guys, obviously Aaron winning it last year. I think it would be hard to topple a quarterback. I don't know that voters are quite there yet, especially in such a pass oriented league where uh, some of these quarterbacks are really going to be lighting it up. And, and I think it has the potential to be an amazing QB year. Scott, what's your second question? All right. So like I said, uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of uh, the positional rankings from PFF and the Browns are Pretty, you know, they're represented well in just about everything we've seen so far. Also on the offensive side of the ball, like defensive line, Miles Garrett's or edge defender, Miles Garrett's fourth. So 
that's that's a pretty good spot. He's behind Khalil Mack, T.J. Watt, and Joey Bosa. Uh, Jadavian Clowney is twentieth. So they got two two guys in the top thirty-two there at, at edge defender. But then you get to interior defender, and the top three: Aaron Donald, Chris Jones, Cameron Hayward. The Browns do not have anybody ranked in uh, the thirty-two spots that the PFF ranked last season. Sheldon Richardson was nineteenth. This year, the Browns have nobody. So my question is, will the Browns have anybody ranked on that list of interior defenders next season? And if so, who could it possibly be? Anybody on their team right now going to be one of the 32 best interior defenders? Can we count Sheldon Richardson possibly coming back? (laughs) He is not on the roster. (laughs) Okay. Malik Jackson? Yeah, I, I think there's going to be such a rotation in there that I don't know if necessarily one guy is going to have the opportunity to sort of dominate and and shine like that. I think the younger guys, I think Malik's going to have a nice, solid season. I think Andrew Billings has the potential to have a nice, solid season. And I think some of those younger guys uh, are going to do some things to contribute but I don't know if there's anybody that's going to just take the interior of that line by storm this season. Is there a case to be made for Malik McDowell? If he kind of keeps it together and he lives up to the hype from when he was drafted. Is he going to make this team? Yeah. I mean, that's the question. It's, it's the ultimate wild card. Yeah. Let's say he makes the team and he looks like the 35th overall pick back in 2017. I mean, it's really, that's a long time between when he was picked and when he's finally going to play a football game. But I mean, Mary Kay, we saw him at rookie minicamp. He looks the part, mm-hmm. but yeah. he's, he's got to get on the field, stay on the field and then, and still be productive. Yeah. It would be the ultimate story of redemption. If, if he could do something like that. And that's what the Browns are hoping for. They really believe truly that he has turned his life around, that he's ready to make that kind of an impact but it, it's a long road back. It's a long road back. Not necessarily, not sure that his first year back having a full season would be the one where, where he sort of lights it up. I mean, maybe he has a year back where he gets reacclimated to the game and then gets better as he goes along. So I'm still going to say no on that one. I think it's probably going to come down to Billings and Jackson, one of those guys being someone who could possibly make this list next season, just I know they're going to rotate guys and they'll probably wait till the very end to actually whittle this position group down. I would guess, or of course, maybe they, maybe they have a good idea of how it's going to look because they, you know, obviously they have more information about these guys right now than, than we do. But I think Billings and Jackson probably have the best shot. If one of, if any of these guys gets on this list going into next season, I think that's huge for the Browns because that's the one spot on defense where there is a huge question mark. You just, you're not sure what you're going to get or who you're going to get it from at defensive tackle, even at linebacker where we know they got some issues, you, you still know what you're getting from specific players, you know, but with, with the inside of the, of the defensive line here, it's just you're not really sure. Is Malik Jackson going to be the guy that, that he had been earlier in his career? You know, is Andrew Billings going to come back from that year off and some of the free agents they they brought in, are they, are they going to get a second wind? We're not really sure what they're going to do. Is Jordan Elliott going to improve on last season? He certainly got quite, you know, he got a decent amount of time rotating in last season. So, but if anybody, any, any of these guys makes, makes this list next season, I think that's going to mean this, 
defensive line had a really good year. Okay, last question, Mary Kay, what do you have? Dan and I kicked this around a little bit yesterday, but Scott, I'd like to get uh, your take on this too. And it is very topical. It's a hot button issue. uh, And those are always worth kicking around. Therefore, and of course, Dan, I want to hear what you, you think about it again too. You know, now that we've had a little time to process it, think about it, talk about it. If you had the opportunity to trade for Julio Jones right now, would you go out and do it? And how would you make it happen if you were going to try to pull this off? How old is Julio Jones? 32, right? 32. 32. I don't think the Browns need to make a trade for a wide receiver. They have a lot of money wrapped up in a couple of guys right now that I think you should be confident in going into the season. And I think you probably owe it to yourself to see what Odell Beckham Jr. can do in this offense for a whole year now that Baker Mayfield has a really good understanding of, of the offense. Now that Kevin Stefanski has a really good understanding of Baker Mayfield trying to cut ties with somebody there. Cause you're not bringing Julio Jones in here with Odell and Jarvis Landry. I think that just creates a lot of unnecessary work and catch up and hoping that that is the right fit. I think this team is pretty set on offense for right now. I don't know if that's a trade, especially not for a guy who's, who's his age and who's going to want the kind of money he, he probably wants. So you wouldn't, in, in terms of a, a trade for Odell, for Julio, you wouldn't do that? No, I wouldn't do that. How much is, do we know how much Julio Jones is on a contract for? 15 million is the base. And I think there's some kind of a bonus there that I, I can't remember who would have to pay that, but somewhere between 15, 16 million dollars, 17 million, somewhere around there. Yeah, I'm not making that trade. So the more I've thought about it, the more I've been intrigued by it, honestly. Who do you have more faith in being healthy next year, fully healthy, Julio or Odell? Because Julio's got a better track record. But then I also think, like, this guy's six foot three, 220 pounds. He's the kind of big receiver that I think would be really good for Baker Mayfield. He can make the spectacular catches. He's got good speed as long as that hamstring from last year isn't something that's lingering and I'm going to guess that it's not, I really think Julio might be the better option. Now that's kind of playing fantasy football because the Browns have made it pretty clear. I think through their actions that they believe Odell's going to be back and he's going to be fine. And him and Baker are going to be fine. And I understand continuity and wanting to keep everything going in the same direction. So I understand me saying that is just playing fantasy football. But I do think if I had to choose between the two, I would choose Julio. It's, it's interesting. And I, I've tried to give it some thought, too. And you make some really, really good points. And it is, it is Julio Jones. And that is a, a dynamic, a, that size of a receiver. That it's basically tight end size, linebacker size now. So <laughs> <laughs> it's brown, bigger than the Browns linebacker. But here's, here's one thing to consider. Odell spent his entire career before he came to the Cleveland Browns with Eli Manning and the New York Giants. And he was so locked into that, that I think it was very difficult to teach that old dog some new tricks. It was very hard for him to make all the adjustments that he needed to make. I think this year, I think he'll be okay. Uh, And I think that, that he and Baker will flourish together. But I wonder if it might be a similar type of thing for Julio where the jolt of trying to start all over 
at this age with a new team and a new environment, you leave your friends, you leave your team, you leave everything you've ever known. You leave your quarterback uh, who you just know each other so incredibly well. And you struggle to make the adjustment to things like ball placement, ball speed. Those guys probably finished each other's sentences, right? I just wonder if trying to make the transition would be a little rough, especially at the age of 32. And I'm the same person who on these pods has said, you know, beware of that Atlanta fantasy football offense. But I, I think I think Julio is talented enough that he transcends that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, look, it would be a short-term play. You'd be kind of going for it, hoping for that Stefan Diggs effect. But if you really made me choose between the two, I would choose Julio. But I don't think the Browns – I don't think that's a Browns move. And he, he would cost 23 – over $23 million in cap space for this season. Although that might that might include some bonuses the Browns wouldn't have to pay. But maybe yeah. they would – yeah, I don't know. It just – it just seems like the kind of trade Andrew Barry would never make. Right. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I would make it. I'm playing fantasy football. I would make it. I don't think Andrew Barry is sitting there saying, let's add Julio Jones to this mix. Yeah. I mean, I'm not feeling it either. I mean, I, I, ha- I haven't really uh, been able to, to get a handle on that yet. And I still have to try to, to dig around on that a little bit, but I, I'm just not seeing that they would do that. I mean, receivers start to, fall off a cliff. I mean, they could fall off a cliff pretty easily. I don't think Julio is going to fall off a cliff at the age of 32, but they do start to decline at 32, according to most of the uh, analytics that you see about receivers. That's about the age where uh, you don't want to be spending 15, $16 million, $17 million on a receiver there. I've been outvoted. No Julio Jones in Cleveland, I guess. Maybe I can get, maybe I can get Doug on my side or something on, on the next round table. That'll do it for this edition of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast, Six Browns Questions. Uh, make sure you're a football insider subscriber. Go to cleveland.com slash Browns, the blue banner at the top of the page. And you're subscribed to this podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And please leave us some good reviews. We'd love to see those five-star reviews saying very nice things about us. So make sure you leave those if you've got some time over on Apple Podcasts. For Scott and Mary Cam, Dan, thanks for listening, everybody.